When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so on the phone, I'm with Mr. Michael Pendleton. He is a a member of the Your First Deal course, and you know what? He got his first deal. So I saw him post about it on the Follow Through Friday post inside of the uh, Your First Deal private Facebook group, and I just brought him on here to talk about it. And so, Michael, how are you? I'm doing well. Appreciate you, uh, you having me on. You bet. And, and just, shoot, I appreciate you for just taking the instruction, following through and, and getting paid. <laughs> it's, yeah, good. It's, uh, it's pretty easy when you lay everything out. You literally just have to do it. There's really no excuse. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad you said that. Um, <laughs> people are tired of hearing me say it. What, what market are you in, Michael? Uh, Oklahoma City. Oklahoma City. All righty. Yep. And then, so you had like three deals coming around, but you posted your first check. I think it was for, I don't have a picture. It was like $15,000. Yeah, fourteen five exactly. Fourteen five, close enough. So, how did you find this particular deal? That was actually printing off my own postcards um, and stamping them myself and, and mailing them. And so it's just an absentee owner list. And so I ended up getting a call on it. It was actually kind of took your your three option letter of intent and your um, that flam and kind of com- combined it really into the postcard. Just had it front and back and where. You know, I kind of laid all my cards on the table and uh, the ones that called me back were generally pretty interested. Nice. Ingenuity. Resourceful. <laughs> sure. Very good. All right. So um, doesn't sound like rocket science to me. What's your, your planned exit strategy was to flip it, I, I presume, since you already got paid. Exactly. Yep. Right. Perfect. And how much money you made on that was 14500 Correct. And uh, so you got two others. Let's talk about those. What? How did you find those two? The same way? Same. Same way. They the the other two were actually a a package deal from a, a, a landlord, and uh, I actually ended up making offers on three. Uh, mm-hmm. He accepted two out of three and went seller financing uh, with a with another investor. But you know they ended up being great deals. Cool. So you got these three deals in. Uh, what yeah. is your What would you say is your biggest lesson learned in these transactions? <laughs> you know, I've, I've always heard it and, and you've probably said it a hundred times. I think that, you know, if you have a deal, um, it, it's really easy to get rid of. And early on, I, uh, in hindsight, I found myself, I guess, massaging the numbers just to get something under contract. And mm-hmm. so I'd get it under contract and I, you know, I'd, I had seven or eight under contract and I just couldn't figure out why I couldn't move them. And then, uh, you know, I kind of sat down and self-analyzed and realized I, I didn't have a deal. I was, I was convincing myself. I was trying to get somebody to buy that property. And, you know, these three, the first one was gone in about 30 minutes and the second one was gone in uh, two hours. And so uh, lesson learned, you know, uh, a deal will be gone very quickly. And so if it's not gone very quickly, you probably need to do a little self-analysis and figure out if it's actually a deal. Right. Yeah. It's either lack of exposure or it's not a deal. Right. Exactly. So, uh, how are you and Casey going to celebrate? <laughs> we uh, now that we have a marketing budget. <laughs> so we uh, that's that's all I'm doing. I actually took these last two weeks um, and 
um, you know, with REI solutions and just really been working on the systems. Um, we, this is our third business. And so we, we own quite a few other businesses. And so I, I have to automate. And so to, uh, to get it to be successful, to be able to scale it. And so taking the marketing budget, um, you had a podcast with Chris Chico. And so I'm doing a lot of Facebook advertising right now and really just trying to find ways to, uh, to streamline and see how I can scale while simultaneously backing myself out. Fantastic. You've been a pleasure to have around the community. Keep doing what you're doing. If you need anything, uh, you let us know and uh, we'll do this again. Outstanding. Well, appreciate everything you do. It's uh, you give a wealth of information. You know, people really just have to do it. And that's, that's all it is. That's awesome. Thanks, Michael. Have a good one. I appreciate it. You too. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. So if you'd like to walk in Michael's footsteps and get that first or next deal done, put one of those $14,500 checks in your pocket, you can go to freerealestateinvestingcourse.com. Everything you need, as you heard, is available inside that course to get your first or your next deal done using little to no money. Go to freerealestateinvestingcourse.com. This is Terrio Media. Yo. Yeah, yeah, we got the cash flow. You didn't know, homeboy, we got the cash flow. Alrighty, so today I am joined by a seasoned real estate investor that started back in 1986. And just three years after he'd started, he'd been able to purchase $17 million worth of property. And since he has helped many hundreds of people buy and sell real estate, and he's sold a ton of it for himself. He's also taught many, many folks how to become real estate investors, quit their day jobs, and change their lives. So please help me welcome to the show, Mr. Joe Crump. Joe, welcome to Epic Real Estate Investing. Thanks for having me on the call, Matt. Uh, you one, thing you, one thing you forgot to mention, I also lost to that $17 million. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that happened back in 1991. And so I've been through the ups and downs of this whole process. And um, it took me a few years to come back uh, from that major loss. But uh, I learned a whole new way of investing because sure. of that loss. Yeah, they say, uh, excuse me, I was just reading um, one of the memes on um on Instagram, and it was of uh, Bill Gates, and he said, success is a terrible teacher. And, uh, <laughs> so you must be a phenomenal teacher now. <laughs> no, I, I resemble some of those remarks, so I, I get it. Um, you know, I was reading up a little bit about you, and uh, you had started in the film business, and there's a little bit of parallel there. I started in the music business and made a transition mm-hmm. over to real estate. Um, what, what inspired that transition from film to real estate for you? Well, I was working in uh, Los Angeles. I went to film school, and I was working in Los Angeles as a grip, uh, which is lighting, uh, the lighting department and Mm -hmm. the business. And I was sitting on the dolly, the camera dolly, with uh, the assistant cameraman one day back in, you know, 1985 or so. Uh, And he was telling me about the house that he owned, and he had made more money uh, on the the appreciation on his house than we both had made <laughs> that year, uh, you know, working in the business. And we were doing pretty well in the business. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. You, you, do, you make this money without doing anything. And uh, <laughs> so I thought, well, you know, it'd be a great idea. Let's go out and buy a house. And so mm-hmm. I went out immediately and I bought a brand new construction. It, it hadn't been built yet uh, and uh, is a stupid way to buy property. I went out and got a loan on it. Uh, and uh, by the time they were finished building it, it took them about three months, four months to build it, it had gone up 20% in value, and I bought it at full price when I bought it, but it, it went up in value because the market was going crazy at the time in California, and uh, so I thought, well, what am I going to do with this? It's too far away from where I live. I don't want to live in it. I don't really want to put a tenant in it. 
you know, because it's too far away. I don't want to manage it. So I just sold it and I made a profit. And I thought, this is pretty cool. I can make money. And maybe if I bought a property below market value, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. big light bulb goes on, uh, maybe I could make even, even more money. So I did it again and I started flipping property. And then I started building property up, up in the Hollywood Hills and uh, building, you know, some really large houses up there, you know, the million dollar properties at the time. And this is like back in the 80s. And um, that's uh, and then in 90, 90, 91 is when the big SNL crisis happened and the crash came and that's when I got caught in that that whole mess, uh, and um, and it was because I was leveraged out mm -hmm. and I was using loans, uh, I was using you know mortgages, I was using my own credit, I was using my own cash into these deals, and that's how I was able to build very quickly. Uh, but the the level of risk uh, on on deals like that is so much higher than if you do it with seller financing or you do zero down techniques uh, or if you use you know cash only uh, for properties which is what I do these days uh, the subject you know I do both seller financing and cash only deals mm-hmm mm -hmm. okay so lost it in 1991 how did the next crash uh, pan out for you were you able to learn from your lessons and make it through there 2006 2007? Oh yeah, I didn't have you know my my name on the line uh, at that point. Uh, I had gotten my credit back in place, and I have perfect credit again, and I'm able to borrow. And I, I I borrowed some more and bought some more properties, but I was also able to buy them in a way that were, was sustainable. No matter what happened to the market, as long as I could put tenants in there, they were sustainable. Uh, at the time, in, in 2004, 2005, I mean, I saw the bubble coming. It was the same thing that was happening back in the 90s. And so I saw it coming again, and I knew that it was coming. I was just surprised that it took till 07, 08 before it really hit. I thought it was going to happen before that. Uh, so I was warning everybody about it, and people were going down to Florida, and they were buying into these condos that were being built in Florida, and they'd pay four or $500,000. They'd put 20% down. They'd get a new loan on it. And uh, when that crash happened, uh, they couldn't sell those properties. So now they're stuck with these properties and these big payments on these $400,000 loans and the potential income for those properties is $1,200 a month. Uh, so they couldn't sustain that business. At the same time, uh, because of the no income verification loans, we were selling subdivisions and I was selling properties to investors uh, that were sustainable. Uh, so they could buy a property that was 120 or 150 in a new new subdivision that we were able to structure deals so they could get in with a really low down payment because of these no income verification loans, everything worked out pretty smoothly. And as long as they had enough uh, um, reserve, they, they weren't gonna lose money because the income on those properties was more than the cost of the loan. Uh, so it made sense, but there was still risk for them. And one of the problems Problems with 07 and 08 is we not only had declines in values, but we also had a lot more vacancies. I went from a, with my portfolio, I went from a 3% uh, vacancy rate to a 20% vacancy rate. So any properties that I had mortgages on, uh, I had to make sure those were paid, which I had enough reserves to do that and I was prepared for it. Um, but there are people that weren't and uh, that didn't keep any reserves and they lost their properties, especially the ones that had negative cash flow. Uh, and with a 20% vacancy rate, that can be pretty painful. If it lasts for six months or a year or two years, that's going to be very painful for people. So you don't want to put yourself into a position where you have that going on. 
Mm-hmm. And, and anybody and anybody that's doing seller financing uh, knows that if you get into a situation like that, let's say you take a property subject to, or uh, you can give that property back to the seller as long as you give it back to them in as you know, as, at least as far as I'm concerned, give it back to them in in the condition that's as equal or better than what you've got it, and that it's paid up and on time. You know, I don't give back properties that I'm three months late on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I'm fortunate enough not to have had to do that because I had built my, um, my portfolio during those intervening years uh, to be uh, substantial enough so I didn't have that cash flow problem. But I saw a lot of people go down because of that. And a lot of people that did loans and, and mortgages uh, had that uh, happen to them as well during during 07. So having a little bit of foresight, uh, having some experience and having that pain in the past made me very much uh, not want that to happen again. Right, right. <laughs> uh, it was a painful, humiliating experience. Mm-hmm. What does your business look like today? Um, well, I have um, uh, you know a fairly sizable portfolio. I I also uh, have most of it taken care of by someone else. Um, my philosophy in all this is systemization. You have to systemize, uh, automate, and outsource. Uh, the work in your business so that you can extract yourself. Because what you want, uh, you know, as, as we all know, we want to work on our business rather than in our business. We don't want to be the day-to-day stuff that we're doing. We want to be able to look at the people that are in our in our, our field, the people that are uh, our employees, our, our partners. We want to be able to see that everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, we want to have systems set up so that they know what they're supposed to be doing. And then all we want to do is sit back and tweak things and make sure that things are moving along smoothly. I also try to set up systems so that uh, each part of the system relies on another member of the team to make sure that job uh, gets done. So if uh, Mary has to do a job, Sam over here um, knows about it and he can't get his job done unless Mary does her job. And so if Mary doesn't do her job, I find out about it from Sam and, and, and vice versa. So you set up systems so that they all interrelate with each other and uh, that uh, you find out about the problems very quickly because uh, everybody else can't do their job unless the other jobs are done. So it's really important to set up your systems properly so that you don't have one person who's doing all the work. Uh, and then if, if they something happens to them and you don't hear from them for a week, suddenly you find out you've just lost a bunch of money because they didn't do their job or they've disappeared or you're not going to have them any longer. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a really unpleasant thing to happen. Uh, after a while, when you're doing this and you have a good system set up, uh, and you're working with people like me. I, everybody works from their own home. I don't have an office space. I, I don't want to go into an office space. Uh, I don't want the overhead of an office space. And uh, I, I prefer, and most everybody that works for me would prefer to work at home anyway. Uh, it gives them some freedom. And we've worked together long enough. Uh, most of my people have worked with me for almost a decade or more. So I've been able to keep continuity with my employees because they're happy being able to do the work that they do. You know, I try to take care of them. I try to make sure that they're happy with their job and their pay and their growth and their potential for the future. Um, but uh, they try to make sure that I'm happy with the work that they're doing. And, uh, you know, that's worked out pretty well for us uh, over the years. Sounds like good relationships with your, yeah. with your team. Yeah. Very important. I couldn't agree more. Um, are you still... In acquisition mode, or are you just strictly in management mode at this moment? Yes, I, I work with several. A lot of the times with my acquisition is through 
uh, my partners. So I'll bring in people that I've actually have been through my mentor program. Uh, mm. That's pretty much the only people that I partner with these days because having gone through six months of my training, they understand what I'm looking for. They understand what I need and what I'm trying to accomplish. So if they bring me a deal and say, hey, Joe, we've got, we've got one here. Uh, I don't have the capital to do it. Do you want to bring in some capital and do something like this? I can step in and do that. Or if they have a, a deal that, hey, I've got a property, I've got, I can get it on a land contract, I can get a subject to, uh, but it needs a little bit of work, you know, we want to put a little bit of capital into it, do you want to do that? And I'll come into deals like that. And then we set up separate LLCs to work with separate people like that. So a lot of the, the investing that I'm doing now is using the money that I've put into my uh, Roth IRA over the years and, uh, you know, continuing to build that that uh, tax-free money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, you're, uh, I expect you've talked to other people about uh, self-directed mm-hmm. Roth IRAs, correct? Okay. Mm-hmm. So, yep. Great. So then uh, that's kind of clear is the answer to the question I was going to ask you. Um, I was going to ask you, well, what's your, your best source or most common source for off-market deals today? And it sounds like it's, it's partnering with your students or your clients. I can tell you where we're, because I'm still bringing in leads. We're generating leads. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm bringing in leads, and then I'm working with people as well. So that's another part of it. And, and uh, most of the leads that we're getting are coming from the software system that we developed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a system that I call the Push Button Auto Marketer, and it's a lead generation, um, development, and conversion uh, system. And it helps you automate your business. So I use it for my business, and then I also sell it uh, to other investors who, who use it. And um, essentially, the basics of the system is it goes out to Zillow and it pulls off uh, all the for sale by owners in a particular area and it'll send them a text that says, would you consider selling your home rent to buy rather than selling it outright? And it sends them a series of texts over a three-month period or whatever period I I tell it to. Uh, and it'll send different messages to them over that period. So it's a drip system uh, for that group. And it sends them texts. It can send them voice blasts. It can send them uh, emails. It can. Uh, we're getting ready to add a new module to be able to send snail mail. So it can send postcards and, and letters. Uh, and then it can do it in a sequence. It, it then takes those people that respond puts them into a CRM, a contact relationship management uh, module within the system and helps us keep track of those people as well. And then, you know, we've got people that are making calls to those people uh, and trying to put together deals. And within that system as well, we've, we've also, uh, you know, we have a lead questionnaire so they can fill out that lead questionnaire online, get all the information that, that's needed. And then the person with the skill, the rainmaker, whoever, you know, I've got assigned to that task, the person who's the most skilled, usually one of my students, uh, is making that call and closing the deal. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then they can also call through the system, um, which is kind of nice because one of the problems with dealing with, with any kind of telemarketer, uh, and not so much my partner students, but, but my telemarketers that I pay hourly, uh, is it's hard to keep track of their time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've got, we set up the system so that it actually can record their calls, uh, and we can keep track of how long they're on the phone. So instead of paying them, you know, they send me an uh, invoice, say I work 10 hours and I made these 10 calls, uh, what I can, what we do instead is I'll pay you 150% 
of the time that you're on the call, uh, and then we monitor them based upon the amount of time that they're on the call because we have recordings of their calls. Uh, so we can say, okay, they've worked for an hour, we pay them for an hour and a half of time. And uh, that's how they get paid that, uh, that makes it possible for us to monitor. It also makes it possible for us to listen to their recordings and make sure they're not saying things to people that they shouldn't be saying uh, and help them with the training process going through that. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's really a, a helpful thing. And I can put as many team members into the system as I want, and we can assign leads to particular team members. So um, when a, a team member, uh, let, let's say we've got a lead that's assigned to one of my uh, people, uh, and I want that person to call six days into the time that lead comes into our process. I can have the system set up and the, uh, the template created, uh, sort of a follow-up template created that I can attach to that lead. It says on day one, they get this text. On day two, they get this voice blast. On day three, they get another text, except it's got an e a URL to one of their uh, websites, the clone sites that I've got. Uh, on day five, I want my team member to call them. We have a, an email and a, or a text uh, or a voice blast, whichever I choose. I can have that sent to the team member saying, you need to call this lead today. Uh, and they can go into the CRM. They can see who the lead is. They can see what they've said to that lead so far uh, and be able to call them and, and uh, do that follow-up uh, you know, efficiently. And then keep their notes on it. So what's you know what's supposed to happen next, and either leave them in that follow-up system, or if if need be, put them into a different follow-up system uh, that applies more to that person based on the conversation that they had, or hopefully you know actually put a deal together with that person mm -hmm. and uh, close a deal. Nice. Sounds like you got a, a really good thorough system set up. Where uh, you had said you had telemarketers. Are these employees? Are they contractors? Virtual assistants? Or is it a service? No, it's all people that I've trained. Usually, we found them through either Upwork uh, or Craigslist. Okay. Uh, so we'll either run ads in Craigslist. If I want to, if I want people that are in a specific area, uh, then I may use Craigslist. But Upwork is pretty good too. And I found that it doesn't really matter where the people are; they just have to have pretty good language skills. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm looking for people that have decent language skills. But if you're hiring a telemarketer, uh, it's the last thing that I tell people to outsource. Uh, if, as you're going through this, first you want to automate everything you know, that, that you're doing. And there's going to be some things that you have to have humans do. And that's what you're going to outsource. But you're probably going to outsource the easier tasks first, the, the time-consuming easy tasks, like just having an admin person to make sure that your leads are getting followed up on and keeping your, uh, your system going. So if I have somebody who's making calls, I have an admin person there who's checking to make sure that they're making those calls and that they're following up and they're putting notes into the system to make sure those calls are, are, have been made. And that person isn't going to be very expensive. I may pay eight or $10 an hour, you know, and, and over time they're going to, their, their rates going to go up, but that's what I would start them at. Uh, and, you know, then I'm going to find somebody who's going to be my boots on the ground because we're doing a lot of this stuff remotely. So if I want to, if I'm in Indiana and I want to put a deal together in California, uh, I can 
go into my auto marketer system, I can buy a 213 area code phone number so that we can call through the system and it'll look like I'm local to the people that I'm calling. Uh, it'll also, um, uh, whoever's, whoever's calling, whether it's a telemarketer, they can call through the system and they can call from that number and it'll look like a local, a local call. And that does make a difference when you're going through the process. If anybody asks, we always tell them that we're not local, but um, rarely do people ask. Mm-hmm. Got it. What's, um, what's going on in the marketplace that you see right now that either excites you or has you concerned and how is it changing the way you're doing business? Well, I'm always, I, I hate to be Pollyanna, but, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I'm always excited about the market, whether it's going up or whether it's going down, because it means different types of business and, and different types of leads. Uh, during, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the boom times, uh, there's, a, you know, that's always good because our portfolio is appreciating. Uh, there's a lot of properties out there. A lot of people are selling. A lot of people are excited about selling. We can still do the zero down structures. Uh, there's not as many people that are in desperate need. Uh, so you don't see as many uh, substantially under market value properties unless you go, you know, in a deeper uh, marketing search, maybe going after absentee or expireds, uh, going after that type of thing, or finding investors through the for sale by owner process. Uh, those are places that we can find a lot of undervalued properties. But as the market declines, uh, those things start getting more attractive and wholesaling becomes more interesting. There's a lot more people that are willing to do uh, subject to and and, uh, uh, and land contracts and contract for deed and multi-mortgages and, and uh, signable cash deals. And we're, start, we're able to use more of our zero down structures when we see the market decline. We've had a really nice run here over the last few years where the market has been increasing. Um, personally, I think that we're heading towards another, uh, you know, market decline. We're seeing some softening in a lot of the markets uh, across the country right now. And I'm kind of in a unique position of being a teacher. I expect you have that same experience because you get to learn from everybody who's in different areas and what they're experiencing. And um, that's kind of what we're seeing right now. There's some still some very nice places in the country, but mm-hmm. I, I never buy based on appreciation. Uh, what I think is good. I, I love appreciation. I love it when it happens, but you can never build a strategy around appreciation. That's what I did in the beginning. And that's why I had uh, that, those losses. Right. You know, because ultimately I thought, oh, this market is going up, you know, 20% per year, 30% a year. Uh, I'm going to make money no matter how stupid I am. And, mm-hmm. uh, and you can in that kind of market until it turns. And then when it turns, if you're still in that market, you're going to get caught in it and you're going to get hammered. And uh, so the goal is to, to buy based on one of two things, uh, either substantially uh, under market value uh, for either cash or terms uh, or um, closer to market value uh, on terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the only two ways that we make money as real estate investors that's reliable, sustainable, uh, and uh, a long-term strategy in any type of market, whether it's appreciating, depreciating, um, you know, high-end market, low-end market. Uh, the stuff that I've been doing works in all those markets. We tweak it slightly based on where the market's at and what kind of responses we're getting. Mm-hmm. You know, I built probably, I don't know, I guess all of it really. Now that I'm thinking about it, I was looking for an exception, but I don't think there's too many. I've built my whole portfolio on creative acquisition strategies. I think we have a lot of similarities there in how we and how we prefer to purchase. I always look to the seller for my first source of financing if I can. And um, I think I have a little bit of a different approach on how I approach a seller with regard to introducing, you know, terms. Um, 
how, how do you do it? You mentioned a little bit of something with uh, your push button automator system and sending out to Zillow and offering a, a rent to own type acquisition. Do you lead with that creative structure or do you um, try and come around to it yeah. in another way? Yes, uh, but before I go into that, please tell me your uh, your basic concept because I'd love to hear what what you're doing. I was left sure. Well, you kind of touched on it. You didn't say it in exact words, but I think we think in somewhat a similar way. Is that you know, as a real estate investor, I want to purchase a property in, in one of two ways. It's going to be my price in the seller's terms or the seller's price in my terms. And as long as I can control one of them, I know I can always make a deal for myself. Mm-hmm. And so. I prefer to go for the equity first. So I will go in with, uh, you know, trying to get the lowball offer accepted and position myself in, in a way where it looks beneficial to them. And then if they want more, then I'll kind of back out. Okay, well, if we're going to go a little bit more for your price, then uh, we're going to have to adjust the terms a little bit. And so I go through that way. I don't try to, uh, I, I did in the beginning and it, it got very frustrating and maybe because I was just a little bit inexperienced in the beginning with it, but, you know, going through it and offering a subject to deal right off the bat. Um, I got a lot of resistance there in the beginning. So I kind of figured a different way to do it and to get less resistance and, and actually earn more trust with the seller along the way. Also by just going in with a traditional offer and then starting getting creative once I found a little bit more about their needs and their motivation. I think that's a pretty valid way to do it. I, I, I have no problem with that. I, um, one of the things, though, I like to have is a lot of leads. I want as many people that were, are interested and in listening to me as possible. Uh, and I'd, I also like to have people who are thinking a little bit creatively and are, are starting to understand as they're trying to sell their property that they're probably not going to do it uh, as a for sale by owner. We know that 85 to 95% of for sale by owners don't succeed. They either take right. their property off the market or they list it with a realtor and uh you know so we want to look at some give them some other options and maybe the way that i'm thinking about it is uh, i think that what you're doing is absolutely valid but i I think that um, one of the things i try to teach and I, i think that i do it because i want people i want my students to come across as credible to the people that they're working with and i think that the best way to do that is by having full transparency and by treating the people that you're working with uh the same way that you treat your family if you're talking to your mom you know what would you suggest to her in order to get her property sold and uh so if i'm going to to talk to someone and say okay you want to sell your property and i first i want to get their ear and that's why we use the lease option because uh, of all the types of approaches we've done with our marketing that's been the one that's gotten us the most leads uh that are that are convertible Mm -hmm. um but once we get them then we're starting to look at the situation and we have to ask them a series of questions questions about their situation, what they're trying to accomplish, what position they're in, how much mortgage they've got, how much their payments are, you know, can what's going to make the most sense for them. And if you're talking to your mom and she says, you know, hey, Matt, I want to sell my, my property. Uh, I want to sell my house and uh, I don't want to use a, a realtor because they're going to cost me, you know, seven, eight, 15% based on, you know, if closing costs and negotiation and repairs and all the other expenses, it's going to probably cost 12 to 15% after all said and done. Plus it's going to take you, you know, three months to get it sold on average and another 45 days uh, on that to get it closed. Uh, does it make sense for me to do that? Or does it make sense for me to sell it in some other manner? Uh, and uh, if you sell it, you know, it, you know, then, then you start to look at, okay, what's their situation? Or do they have a need situation? Or do they have a greed situation? Or do they want more money? Or, or do they, you know, is that what's it, um, the, the, the issue? Or is it they don't have too many options? 
Mm-hmm. So you, you help them understand what their options are by going through that list of options with them. You know, have you talked to a realtor yet? Uh, does that make sense to you? You know, do you know what it costs to work with a realtor? In in this conversation, learning to use a Socratic method of sales, uh, which is basically uh, asking questions to help people come to their own conclusion uh, that aligns with yours. Uh, and that, that's how Socrates did it. And there's some, actually some good books on Socratic selling. If you just Google it on, um, or, or just am, go to Amazon and find them, mm-hmm. uh, there's some good books on that. Because leading people down the path, it's more of a consultive type of sales. You're not twisting some old lady's arm to try to, you know, to squeeze out every bit of equity out of her property that she was planning on giving to her kids when she died. Mm-hmm. You know, so instead you're saying, what makes the most sense for you and you know because i know there's a lot of ways that i can make money and and i can make good money and there are some people that they just want to get rid of the property and they're happy to give it to me with uh, the price that i need in order to be profitable for me Mm -hmm. Uh, so if i I can get a lot of undervalued properties that way and i can find people that just want to make the most money and do a lease option because that's how they're going to make the most money if they hold on to that property, they've got some really nice places where they can make money. They can make money by uh, from depreciation on their taxes. You know, you're going to get that 27.5-year depreciation, 3.64% of the tax basis of that property every year. Uh, they're going to get the buy-down on their mortgage if they've got a mortgage every month. You know, how much is that? Is $150, $200, How much are they getting on that? They're going to get the cash flow, uh, you know, the difference between their income on the property and uh, the uh, their costs on the property, their, their monthly PITI. Um, they're going to get uh, the appreciation on the property if it goes up in value because lease options usually don't exercise their option. Uh, less than 30% of lease options exercise their option. Uh, so it probably means that you're going to keep that property, which is the best financial you know, situation you could be in. Or if they exercise the option and they take it, you're going to get top dollar without paying any realtor fees. Uh, and uh, so you're going to be walking away with all the money, all of your equity, instead of you know a, a dramatically reduced amount, which you get after you pay the realtor fees. Uh, so there's some really nice ways uh, to express that to people that are trying to um, get their property sold and are struggling with for sale by owner and don't like the idea of working with a realtor. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I'd give you the cliff notes of, of what, you know, kind of the behind the scenes not behind the scenes, but at least the uh, the strategy of, of my acquisition. But yeah, we go right down that. We take a very much a consultative approach and, you know, yeah. it's, it's all what's in, in the best interest for them. As long as we can, the market will allow us to both get what we want, then, uh, then we got a win-win deal. Win-win is everything in business because it, it, it makes it possible for you to have a lifestyle that you'd actually want. Mm-hmm. You know, the people that are doing win-lose deals, they're in pain all the time because they're putting a lot of people in pain. <laughs> and uh, your life is going to be painful when you put people in pain. So, but if you're solving problems for people, you know, it's like Zig Ziglar always said, the more people you help, the more money you make. And right. uh, if you solve problems for a living, uh, you're going to have a lot more people happy with you. And, uh, you know, when you, when you go to a closing and somebody, you know, and the seller gives you a hug saying, boy, thank you for doing this. And the, and the buyer is in tears because they could not have bought a property without doing it using terms the way you're teaching them, right. uh, the way you help them do it I, there's there's very few things that are as rewarding as you know changing people's lives like that and uh so it can be a really powerful a powerful thing and in the meantime you make a ton of money right what's one commonly held truth that you disagree with 
um, that you should use loans and leverage your money, you know, uh, conventional loans. When you go out to a bank, uh, first of all, it makes the deal a lot more complex. Uh, so that's a, uh, I would, I would walk away from, from loans and, and start doing it with uh, seller financing. Uh, and then once you've made enough money with seller financing, use that cash to buy properties and maybe work in, uh, in, in low end markets, you know, rural areas, urban areas, uh, that, that, uh, you know, can be good rental markets. Uh, you know, that's, uh, we've been doing a lot of that and, and, uh, there's an awful lot of seller finance deals in those types of situations. You know, you get into an area that's got $40,000 properties. It's hard for people to go out and get a loan because most the conventional lenders won't loan under $40,000. Right. So if you go out and get a, a, a land contract on a deal like that and say, look, I'm going to pay you uh, on this land contract. And, and, um, if you want to, I'll, I'll give you a quick breakdown of how we, Actually, that's a really interesting structure that your, your people might enjoy hearing about because we're doing zero interest land contracts or contract for deeds if you're in a, a trustee state. Uh, and um, essentially, we'll go to somebody, let's say they've got a $40,000 property, and uh, let's say they make $750 a month of income on that property, which isn't uncommon uh, on these low-end properties because you have a really high income-to-cost ratio on those, which makes your return on investment very high for those types of properties. But uh, uh, let's say uh, let's say you only got seven hundred dollars a month income on that. You know it's going to cost you seventy dollars a month to have it, the property management. You know you want two hundred dollars a month um, of uh, positive cash flow and the, the taxes and insurance. Let's say that costs you you know one hundred and fifty dollars a month. So now that gives that puts you at a four hundred and twenty dollars in cost on a seven hundred dollars. That means you've got two hundred and eighty dollars a month of um, of money that you can spend on uh, debt service. So if you take that $40,000, you divide that $280 into it, that gives you 142 months. You divide that by 12 months, that means you've got uh, 11.9 years and you can pay that that thing off at $280 uh, a month. Uh, which is, uh, and we're finding a lot of properties that we're paying off in five to seven years uh, because of this, because we're doing zero interest. And the way we approach it with the people says, we'll make these amount of payments over this amount of time to pay you this much money. Is that acceptable? And uh, if they accept that, uh, that makes a really wonderful investment because we're not only getting that $200 a month positive cash flow, we're also getting that $280 a month that's going directly to principal. Mm -hmm. uh, which, if you're using a, you know, if you want to get a $100,000 loan from a bank, you know, your first 10 years, you're getting, you're putting $100 a month towards that $100,000. You know, right. the $900 a month goes towards the other, other expenses. Right. And, uh, so it makes a lot of sense when you buy properties like this because your, your capital and your equity goes up dramatically. You know, and the other types of top properties you can buy when you have, even if you have twenty or thirty or forty thousand dollars, you can go in and buy properties like this, and you can keep them for the long term, uh, and put those in your portfolio. You know, let the money come in, and uh, don't touch those properties. You know, don't don't touch, uh, don't sell them. Just hold on to them. Build your portfolio. In the meantime. Uh, the way you make your income is by either flipping properties or finding other ways to to bring income in from uh, using terms deals, and uh, you know whether it's doing lease option flips, you know on high end properties, uh, or um, you know because if you're working in a million dollar property market, 
you know, say you're working in Brooklyn or you're working in uh, Queens or you're working in Sacramento, uh, you know, you're, you're dealing with high-end properties, you know, and you can start bringing in, you know, between ten and $50,000 lease option fees on high-income properties like that. And that starts getting attractive as well. In addition to that, you can also get promissory notes if they don't have enough for a down payment. You can take an additional chunk of money or additional down payment from a promissory note, even if you're flipping the property. Uh, mm-hmm. So you don't have to hold on to those properties with using sandwich leases, which I think is a mistake. Right. Okay. So the, I'm, I'm glad you talked your way through it because now I, I had an immediate question when you said that commonly held truth that you disagree with is taking conventional bank loans. But it's not necessarily the, the source of the loan. It was the difference between a 30-year amortized or a 0% interest loan? It's also the risk. It's also the risk. I mean, if you look at the the reason that I crashed was the market going under, but I could have, you know, if if the banks had stayed with me, uh, I could have completed the, the, because I was doing construction up in the Hollywood Hills when things crashed. If Mm -hmm. the banks had stayed with me, we could have completed those deals and we could have gotten out of them and we would have been okay. But the banks got nervous. They had to call the loans due. Uh, We had to to walk away because of that uh, situation. They came to us when the equity dropped and said, you got to come up with more cash which we didn't have at the time. So if you have too many properties that have too much, uh, too many notes on them, and let's say you've got you know, $200 a month positive cash flow on a property, a lot of times people will take even subject to properties, let alone um, uh, regular, you know, if you just took a single family home and rented it. Uh, but it, most uh, tax assessor areas uh, charge more to investors than they do to homeowners. In Indiana, uh, it's a 1% for a homeowner minus, you know, some deductions like mortgage exemptions and homestead exemptions, which you can get it down to about a half a percent. Um, but if you take over that property as an investor, your tax rate goes up to 2% on the taxable assessed value. And uh, suddenly you've doubled or done more than double your cost on that. So if you, you know, suddenly you're your 150 or $200 a month uh, cash flow disappears because your taxes went up that second year. Mm-hmm. And uh, now you have to, now you don't have any cash flow. And as soon as you have a vacancy, you got to come out of pocket to make that happen. Now you can, uh, what I tell everybody when they're keeping properties like this, uh, if you're doing it, if you lease option the properties rather than rent it, you can get a lease option fee. So let's say you got a $100,000 property, you uh, get a $5,000 lease option fee, maybe another $5,000 as a promissory note that they're paying you. Uh, you take that $5,000, and if you only have one property to your name, you probably want to take that whole $5,000 and put it into an escrow account and not touch it because that property is going to go vacant at some point. You're going to have to make the payments on it, uh, and you're going to have to do some minor repairs and put another tenant in there. Of course, when you put another tenant in there, they're going to it's going to be another lease option fee, so you get another $5,000. Uh, and that may not happen for a year, may not happen for three years, may not ever happen. I mean, they may just stay in there because uh, if I have somebody goes in on a three-year lease option uh, and their three years is up and they don't exercise their option, they want to stay in the property, I'll probably let them stay in the property. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, it makes sense. So they could be in there for a decade. Mm-hmm. So you, maybe you're doing both. Are you acquiring lease option or are you selling lease option or both? Uh, I'm selling on lease option. Right. Uh, that's I, I have a, what I call the zero down structure hierarchy. Mm-hmm. I believe there's a, a hierarchy of control. And whether you're the buyer or the seller, that hierarchy is reversed. So if you start, if you're the buyer of that property, uh, the strongest position that you can be in uh, is subject to because you get the deed. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you have the deed to that property, you know, next is multi-mortgage and then land contract or contract for deed. The next one after that is assignable cash deals and, and then lease options. Uh, and if I'm selling a property, uh, the strongest position I can be in uh, as the seller is to sell it on a lease option because it makes the the buyer in the weakest position. And and when I talk about strength and weakness, you have to assume that you're the most ethical person in the room. And uh, so knowing that, you know that you're going to do the right thing with people. You're not going to cheat people uh, because having this control gives you power. <laughs> so you have to know that you're the most ethical person in the room. You're going to do the right thing. So in order for you to do the right thing, you have to be in control. So make sure that you're in control of your deals and understand what kind of control you have based on the structure that you're using in the transaction. Right. No, I, I totally understand. I was, I was following along through this whole conversation a, l- a little bit lost in, the, in regard to when we were talking about your, your offer to Zillow Fizbo's and the, the rent-to-own acquisition thing. Maybe I misunderstood that. And I was like, wow, you're acquiring lease option? So we're, fl- we're flipping lease options. You're flipping so, lease options. So, so essentially what we're doing is we're saying, would you consider doing a lease option? Uh, and if they say yes, uh, then uh, what we'll do is we'll take their property. I say, well, we'll say, well, how much do you want for the property? Oh, I want $200,000 for the property. Okay. And how much, uh, you know, what's the market rent for that property? Uh, let's say it's $1,800 a month. So you've got a $200,000 property. Is, that's what you're going to get them for that property. And you don't really have to worry too much about negotiating price on a deal like this. If it's worth close to $200,000, you are probably okay. I'm then going to re- raise the price to maybe two twenty, dollars uh, and I'm going to try to get maybe 10 in cash and maybe 10 as a promissory note from a new buyer. Uh, or at least five and five uh, on something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out there and I'm going to assign my right to buy. And, and the way I'm going to get control of this property is, is with a one-page option agreement. I call it the lease option memo. Uh, and it's basically an option agreement saying that they, I have the right to buy this property or assign it to someone else. And our memo actually defines what we're doing. It tells them, you know, we're going to go and sell this to somebody else and, and we're going to make a profit on it. Uh, it. That makes us a principal in the transaction. And when you become a tr- principal in the transaction, it makes it legal for you to sell that property. If, you, if you're not a principal and you don't have a license, license, real estate license, then if you try to sell it, then you're doing something that's illegal. So make sure you have the document uh, that makes it legal so that you can do it and become a principal and be able to flip that property. So essentially, we'll get the, let's say the $5,000 or $10,000 from the lease option buyer. We're going to raise that price to two ten. dollars uh, they're going to come up with ten thousand dollars. They're going to get. We're going to keep the ten thousand. They're going to come up with the first month rent. We pass that on to the seller, uh, and the eighteen hundred dollars, uh, and uh, we also pass on the buyer. We're out of the deal at that point, and then that buyer is going to move into the property and make payments uh, to that seller for that three-year period, which is typically what we do on a lease option. Got it. Uh, until they no, totally following you now. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Super. So you you're going into an option with the seller, and then you're exiting by assigning that option and putting a lease in place for the seller. Correct. Now, when you're taught, the, the, the reason that we market with lease options is because that's the response. That's the thing that we're going to get the most responses from. Mm-hmm. If you send out a text blast saying, I want to buy your property, I'm an investor and I want to get a good deal on it. You're going to get fewer responses than if you say, I want to do a lease option. And 
our, the, the way our text blast works over that three month period that the drip system that we use, mm-hmm. uh, it does send out different messages. It sends out one that says, uh, you know, I'm interested in making an offer on your property and it sends them to another website. Uh, you can see it. We will buy.com. basically just a, I buy houses website. Uh, and then another website it sends them to is I buy, this is what we do with lease options, how we flip lease options. And that's called uh, buyersforyourhouse.com. And I've set up the system so that it's got these, all these different websites in it uh, with different types of offers that we drip on the sellers over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they can see, one, that we're credible. Uh, two, that they've got, we've got different ways to solve the problem. Uh, and three, that maybe we hit them at the right time with the right message. You know, that's kind of the goal here is to get enough people that you're hitting with messages at different times through their selling, selling process. Uh, you know, whether it's the, the first day that they've got it on the market or the three months into it or even after that. Uh, and and try to, to to convert those people. Got it. Sweet. When you take it over to the option, are you actually giving them an option fee, or are you waiting until you find the buyer? No, they don't get an option fee. They get the first month's rent. Okay, so, the first month's rent. Okay. Right. So if and and the reason this the reason I developed it this way uh, was because when I uh, originally when I was a real estate agent because I after everything crashed for me back in ninety one I became an agent mm-hmm. and and uh, I turned into actually a top producing agent within that first year. Um, and it taught me some things about real estate that I didn't know as an investor and as a builder. Because I would go out and I would do a listing presentation as an agent mm-hmm. uh, to somebody who didn't have much equity. And they would have to come to closing with $10,000 uh, to be able to sell their property because that would be about what the real estate agent fee would cost. And they didn't have it. So I was walking away from these deals, not because they didn't want to work with me, but because they couldn't. Mm-hmm. So I, I said, well, why don't I just lease option the property for you? There, you don't have too many options here. You can't pay for a realtor to get rid of it. You don't have any equity in the property. This will end up you know, actually making you money if I do it this way. Uh, but the, the way agents fill properties on lease option is they typically charge a month's rent to do that. Because that's what that's what property managers do. You know that's what's kind of expected. Uh, so I I just modified. I didn't want to work for one month's rent, and most agents don't want to work for one month's rent. Mm-hmm. You know I didn't want the twelve hundred dollars. I wanted the five thousand, or I wanted the ten thousand uh, dollars. So instead, uh, and I wanted to be able to get my seller the amount of money they needed in order to be able to sell the property and not have to come to closing with money. So I left. I gave them full value. I raised the price a little bit over market value, asked for a down payment, uh, and then got people that couldn't have bought a property or owned their own property into a property, um, you know, in a way that's probably cheaper for them uh, than um, buying it with a uh, with a regular standard mortgage. Got it. I totally understand. Where I'm trying to go with this is your option actually executed before you find the buyer? Have you given them their first no. month's rent? No, 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 no. no we okay. don't. We don't execute until we have a buyer. So it's contingent upon us finding a buyer. Got it. And, okay. uh, and we give ourselves 90 days to do that. Honestly, it takes usually less than three or four weeks to find somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and everything is contingent upon what or determinate upon by the monthly payment. Mm-hmm. It's not about the purchase price. It's about the monthly payment. So if you're at market rent or below, uh, you'll probably sell it within three or four weeks using Craigslist, Zillow, uh, Facebook, uh, mm-hmm. and a sign in the yard. 
Got those it. those things are simple enough to, to to be able to get that property sold if that monthly payment is in line with market rent. Because you have to remember, people look at, uh, according to the Association of Realtors, 18 to 23 houses before they buy one. They're going to buy the best thing that they can buy for the money out there. So if you're not competing with the other properties properly in the in the space that they're competing, which on rental or lease options is going to be you know monthly payment. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're not competing on that level, then you're, all you're going to do is help somebody else sell their property. Right, right. No, I'm with you 100%. I guess what you threw me was when you started talking about being the principal in the transaction. And I thought there was a distinction you were creating between whether you have a property under a purchase agreement as a principal or as an option agreement as a principal, but they're the same. They're the same. Yes. Okay. That's, I was thought there was a, a something that you were defining there and that I wasn't following along with, but I got you. I'm with you. Cool. I like it. Thank you, Joe. If someone wanted to uh, get in touch with you, what would be the best way for them to do that? Um, probably to start out with, go to, go to my blog and Joe Crump blog.com. Uh, there's a, there's over 500 free training videos there. Uh, there's a lot of material there. Uh, if they're interested in the auto marketer, uh, pushbuttonautomarketer.com is uh, where that's located. And uh, if they want to work with me personally, uh, I, I also have a mentor program. I have a six-month uh, mentor program where I work personally with people. I'm the coach, they, the person that they're talking to. Uh, and they can go to zerodowninvesting.com and spell out zero, Z-E-R-O. Uh, downinvesting.com. And there's details about how that program works. It's an expensive program. It's like going to college for a semester. Uh, mm-hmm. It's about, about the same cost as going to college for a semester. And I have certain expectations for people when they get into it. So I always ask that if they're interested in that, uh, they can scroll down to the bottom of the page and my phone number's there and they can call me and uh, I'll, I'll answer their questions. But I also have uh, questions for them about, uh, about uh, what they're doing and what they're trying to accomplish because I'm a little careful about who I bring into the program. Right. I, uh, I think the most important thing, uh, and I'm sure you've come across this yourself, but the most important thing to learning how to be an investor is not that you have capital, is not that you have good credit, is not that, uh, you know, that you're really smart or they're really good on the phone or any of those things. What matters is that you have a good attitude and you have, they have the willingness to work and willingness to, to follow through and do the stuff uh, that I teach. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and uh, if they do that, then I guarantee that they'll make money. If they don't do that, I guarantee they won't make a dime. <laughs> <laughs> right? I, I get it. No, I, yeah, we all have our, our areas of, um, I don't know, I use the word expertise very loosely because uh, there's so much that we can all still learn. But sure. um, yeah, you, you, you got to do your part and, and we can't help everybody. So I, I see the, the screening process. I understand that wholeheartedly. So great. I really enjoyed this, Joe. Thank you for, for taking the time out to come and, and share your wisdom here on the show. And uh, I say we stay in touch and we do it again. Is that all right with you? Absolutely. Anytime. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I appreciated you as well. And, and, and you're very welcome. All righty. So that's it for today. God bless to your success. I'm Matt Terrio, living the dream. Yo. Take care. Yeah, yeah, we got the cash flow. Huh. Yeah, yeah, we got the cash flow. Yeah, yeah, we got the cash flow. You didn't know, homeboy, we got the cash flow.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.